Daniel, we are recording. Welcome to the Fab Academy. So to review schedule, uh, we've now started up the recitations. Uh, there was a nice one to kick off. Let's see, I don't know if, oh, let's see. Is there, the recitation link doesn't yet go to the recitations, if you can catch up with that when you get a chance. Um, but we're recording these, and there was a nice one with the Global Humanitarian Lab on the community collaboration with them, and it led to some very focused interest. We'll do some follow-up sessions with them. Uh, I won't send a reminder every week, but now every Monday we're going to have these recitations. Again, they're supplemental. You don't need to do anything, but they extend the material. Uh, I won't be here on the one on the 20th, but there's going to be a tour of Fab Foundation, Fab Economy, Fab Labs, IO, um, all the different organizations linking the Fab Lab network that have grown up around it will be, uh, Roman will be that and provide a tour of it, where we share documentation, projects, buy, sell, hire, uh, support, things like that. Um, week after that, uh, John Hirschstack, who wrote SolidWorks and then founded Onshape, will join to talk about that. Um, and then um, machine building sequence after that. Uh, for the coming weeks, we're going to start alternating now between form and function, between mechanical fabrication and electronics fabrication to build in intelligence. A big part of the class is going to be making circuits designing circuits and programming circuits. So this week is producing electronics. You won't yet understand how they work. Um, in two weeks, we'll start designing electronics. And then the real heart of the brains is the embedded programming, how to write programs for little processors. And we'll start that two weeks later. And then we'll do inputs and outputs, sensors and actuators. So this week is just the production part. And so this week's assignment is to make an in-circuit programmer. And so uh, here's an example of it. Um, this is, I'll go over a few versions, this, but this is a version of what you're going to make. Um, this is a circuit to program circuits. You, you use this to load a program into uh, another one. The, the heart of this is, um, Uh, this is an ATtiny 45. It costs less than a dollar, and it's a complete computer. It uh, does inputs, outputs, high-speed processing. You can make radios, motor controllers, communicate. This is the brains of the projects you'll be making. And to use this, you have to load a program into it. And so what you see is a programmer. Um, you can buy commercial ones like this, but this is one that you're going to make and use it to load programs into these computer chips that you'll be using. And so to do this, you need to cut out the circuit board and attach the components. This week will give you the design. You just make it. And then in the coming weeks, you'll start making the designs. So, um, to make PCBs, 
there are multiple processes. Uh, the most common one industrially, um, like we heard in ULU, is etching. And so you use chemicals to etch away the copper. Um, that's how almost every PCB commercially is made. Um, one way to do that is lithographically. You spread an optical resist and then you expose the pattern. Another way to do it is with a transfer where you thermally transfer a mask and then whichever of those you then etch. What's nice about etching is you can do it to very high resolution and it's a parallel process. You can etch many boards at once. What's not nice about etching one is their setup. You have to do the transfer process. Um, but the other one is the chemistry. And so one kind of etchant is um, ferric or cupric chlorides, um, which are really nasty. A little bit better are uh, persulfates, like ammonium or sodium. But um, if we use these at MIT, they're considered hazardous chemicals, and we have to have a supplier come and dispose of them. Uh, MSDS are material safety data sheets. Um, and I recommend starting to um, uh, use these um, to learn about um, the materials uh, you use. So just about any chemical you use um, has MSDS data sheets. And if you look at the safety data sheet for, for example, ferric chloride, what you'll find is really bad. It's full of dangers. So it's hazardous to you. But more than that, it's, it's hazardous to plumbing. If you pour it down the drain, as hobbyists do, it etches away the plumbing and then the sewer system. And it's really hazardous to the environment. So a real disservice is done by teaching hobbyists to etch without a system for waste disposal. You're making really nasty chemistry. Um, to etch, you need to do life cycle of the chemistry. So it makes sense when you need to do batch or very high resolution. But other than that, I recommend don't do it. Um, leave etching to vendors that I'll talk about. Um, what we're going to do is machining. Um, this is a series of videos a student made um, of the process. Um, uh, it's a little bit out of date for the software tools, but it shows the process. And this is what it looks like. We use a little tabletop milling machine and a precision cutting tool. And what, what he's doing is milling the traces. Um, and then when you're done, um, uh, let's see if we go to this one. Um, when you're done milling, let's see, let's see if he shows it here. Um, you get beautiful output. Um, these are really nice. This, this is what comes out from the milling process. And the reason we like this so much, the first thing is there's no setup. Um, you don't have to do lithography or patterning. It's direct right, so every job can be different. And um, the other uh, big benefit is um, the only waste is a little bit of dust you clean up. Just 
you vacuum up a little bit of dust that's harmless. And so it's much friendlier for the environment and direct right. And so this is a great process for quick turn prototyping um, where every board you make is different. Um, it's not a good process for repetitive fabrication of many copies of the same board. Roughly about, say, one to 10 boards, I'll do this way. If I need more than 10, I'll send them out to a board house to etch. So, Neil, sorry. Uh, we're gonna... uh, sorry, I would like to uh, make a remark about the uh, material safety data sheet. Um, to to help you understand how they're written, because it's they can, they can be a bit daunting, and, and we, I guess we get to the same point in in data sheets when we when we get to that point in in time. But um, start with a material that you know is 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 bad for you, and understand right. how they're down. So, if for example, if you search for PVC, if you want to know how they say things about PVC and and burning, for example, for using it in a laser cutter, um, then you can you can you can sort of because you know the material is bad, you can sort of find out how they talk about it, and then you can look at other and then if they talk about it in the same way, you know it you know again it's bad for you. So I'm going to come back and talk about machining. Um, there are a number of other processes. So um, again, the so this page is a little old for the software, but it shows the process. Um, you can vinyl cut. This is copper on the vinyl cutter. Um, you peel it off, and then you can apply it to rigid backings, flexible backings, transparent. And so another way we make circuits is with the vinyl cutter. The resolution isn't as high, they're not as robust, but this lets you make flexible circuits that are stickers that you can put on anything. And so some students, there's more skill involved, some students fall in love in this, and they do all of their projects on the vinyl cutter. Um, laser cutting is a more recent, um, a, a cheapo laser cutter is a few thousand dollars, a reasonable one is, you know, $10,000. This one um, doubles it again because this is two lasers. It's a CO2 laser for cutting, um, but then it's a fiber laser. And so with the fiber laser, um, uh, what's happening here is the fiber laser is rastering um, to ablate the cardboard, the, the, the copper, um, this is sped up, um, and then um, the CO2 laser can cut it out. And so um, this is a really nice process because it can go to it. It can be faster and it can be higher resolution than milling, um, but you have to spend much more on the laser for that. Um, there's ongoing research on printing circuits. Um, so one of the leaders of that is um, uh, Jennifer Lewis at Harvard, um, who's making printers to 3D print circuits. Um, they still can't match the electrical properties and the feature size. That's the research area. Um, uh, the ULU project mentioned um, electroplating. Um, you can use electroplating to make circuits. When you see a theft tag in a store that has a little antenna, the way those are made in volume isn't etching, it's plating. You print 
a conducting ink and then you electroplate the circuit on it. So that's a very cheap process. Um, an interesting one, this was an early thesis from one of my students on um, developing sewing circuitry. And so this is using conducting thread uh, to embroider electronics. Obviously not as high resolution, but that's an, yet another way to do it. So if we go back to the assignment this week, I want you to mill it first so everybody learns that. Then optionally you can play with laser cutting or vinyl cutting or these other kinds of, pro or etching these other processes. But the reason I want you to learn milling first is out of all of these, milling has no setup, no waste, produces uh, robust boards with good feature size. And so it's the starting workhorse I want to make sure you all learn. So again, um, this board is made that way and um, they just really come out beautifully. So to do the machining, that, that's the starting focus, there's a number of things you have to do. You need the tool. And so, um, the, oh, have these links changed? Yeah. Um, uh, let me make a note. So it looks like the links there have changed, but um, we generally buy these end mills from Carbide Depot and um, oh yeah, they, they've overhauled their site. This looks different now. Um, I'll see if I can find this quickly. Otherwise, I'll, I'll add the links back to the class page. Um, yeah, no, they've, they've completely changed their site. So this actually is an off, spun off from work of NASA's aerospace machining. Uh, I'll fix those links. Um, or actually here, I'll, I'll show you. Um, th this is the main end mill we'll be using, and you won't be able to see it. This is a 160, here, let's focus it. This is a 164th inch end mill. And so in the video, you won't even see the tip. You'll just see a shape and you won't be able to resolve it. The, the standard end mill we use is a 64th of an inch. And the reason we buy them from this vendor is these are about $15 each. And generally around the world, these cost much more than that. Um, so we buy large volumes of these from this really great vendor. It's a 164th inch end mill, and then it's um, coated with a ceramic coating that gives it a long cutting life. We use a 132nd end mill that's a little bit deeper cutting and a little stiffer um, to cut out the board outline. And when you have really tiny features, we go down to a 10,000th of an inch end mill. But the main one we use is the 164th. If you use it properly, it can make, say, 20 or 30 boards. So you're consuming tens of cents of end mill life, and the boards cost pennies. Um, if you use it incorrectly, you'll break it um, and waste $15. And so part of the training is how to use it without breaking the end mill. There's a lot of things you can do wrong. It's not dangerous. It's just a waste of the life of an end mill. So 
you need to attach your board to machine. We're only going to cut in a few thousandths of an inch. Um, so the board needs to be flat. And so the way we do that is we put double stick tape on the back of the board. And the reason we do that is if you clamp the board from the sides, it bows a little bit, so it, it flexes, and it also is under stress. By taping it, it holds it from below, and that keeps the board perfectly flat, and there's no stresses in it. And so that helps with the end mill. Under the board, there's an underlay that's sacrificial. So you're going to machine, then you'll cut it out, and you cut into a sacrificial underlay. Um, one of the most common problems in milling boards is you say, I got a bad result. And what happens is the underlay has been machined so many times that the underlay itself is a mess and doesn't hold the board down very well. So the underlay has a lifetime. And you know every few months, you just replace it with a fresh one. Then if we go back to these videos, uh, what the videos show is the sequence of um, you, you put the tape you attach your board, you bring the machining head close to it, then there's a set screw holding the end mill, and um, you gently lower the end mill down to the surface. If you drop it, you'll break the tip. It's hard, but brittle. Um, so you gently lower it, you don't let it crash down, which will break the tip. And then when it's resting on the surface, you tighten the set screw that holds the height. Um, and we're doing that to zero it so that it's exactly zeroed at the surface. Um, the set screw needs a special note. Um, beginners consider it a clamp, and they tighten it as hard as they can. And when you do that, what you're doing is you're stripping the set screw and the collet it goes into. You don't need a lot of force. The set screw is just snug. And then that holds the end mill exactly at zero. If you don't zero it properly, you're either cutting in the air or you're cutting too deep. If you zero it properly, um, you're cutting just the right depth. When you do all of that, you should be able to make um, oh, let's see. so th this is what the boards look like when they come out from that process. Um, and you should be able to make you know, 20, 30 of these. Um, over the lifetime, when the end mill starts life, it's so sharp that a trace has very fine shavings because it's so sharp. Then it actually gets better with use. It gets slightly dull, which curves it, which gives a smoother edge. And then near the end of life, instead of the traces having a sharp edge, as the end mill is getting used up its lifetime, it's getting too dull, and the edges get rough. Rather than having sharp edges, the traces have rough edges. And that's the sign of the end of life of the end mill. And if all goes well, that's tens of boards. Once you're done... The little pro tip with um, yeah. uh, end mills, is um, specifically if you have a very precise setup, you're always cutting at the same depth in the copper. So change the change the depth of cut like a tenth or a hundredth of a, a few hundredths of a millimeter, and you get a fresh edge again.
Yeah, you can extend the life of the end mill by just slowly marching down how deep you cut, so you're cutting on different parts of the end mill. That's a good tip. Um, once you're done, um, there's some shavings and um, imperfections from the cutting process. So you need to deburr. And the way I deburr is I just take a steel rule like this and I use it to define an edge and I just sort of score that um, to deburr it. There are a number, you can use a light abrasive. I just use a sharp edge like this to deburr the traces. And then very important, at that point, you have some fine shavings and the board is covered with, among other things, oils from your fingers. Those will begin to etch the copper not right away, but over time scale of months. So after you've done machining, the last thing is to wash the board, just in soap and water, to make it clean and shiny. Um, once you do all of that, you should get this. This is exactly how it should look. The traces have smooth sides, the copper is nice, clean, and shiny, the cut depth is the same everywhere. Um, Unlike what I said about the vinyl cutter, uh, this is a completely predictable process. As long as nothing goes wrong, each of these always comes out perfectly like this. Um, if it doesn't look like this, there's something wrong somewhere in the process. So in the lab, you'll go through all of the steps of fixturing, zeroing, um, removing the job, taking it out, cleaning it. So a number of steps to go through. First is the PCB material. Um, uh, standard PCBs that you see commercially are FR4, which is um, a glass epoxy mix. And typically, they're greenish. There's a color tint to them. So that's the most common. It's actually a composite material, which we'll talk about later. We have produced for us uh, FR1. Um, so this is FR1. It's yellowish, and if you look carefully, there's no, um, there's no glass reinforcing. Um, so this is a um, uh, fiber rather than glass reinforced. Um, this isn't as strong and it's not as good at high temperatures, which is why it's less common in industry. But we use it because it machines beautifully. It's, it's, it's designed for beautiful machining, and we're not doing anything that requires extreme PCB strength or extreme high temperature. Um, you need to use FR1. If you put FR4 in the mill and machine it, it'll work but you're killing the tool because there's a fight between the glass and the carbide. And so you can only make a few boards milling FR4 compared to the tens of boards you can make milling FR1. So um, we source FR1 for Fab Labs, and that's what you should be using for machining. Don't use random PCB stock. Yeah, also um, be care very careful because I know that there's bound to some labs that, that have like access to a reflow oven and they might be tempted to try the FR1 um, in the reflow oven. Be very careful when you do that because you're bringing it very close to the flash point, in which case it might, might spontaneously combust inside your reflow. 
Yeah, there's a particular kind of reflow I'll describe, but if you want to do reflow, you need a higher temperature process. And again, you can mill FR4. It just yeah. it significantly shortens the tool lifetime. One, one question, Neil. When, when yep. you're saying about uh, high temperatures of the FR4, what do you mean? It's like a very so high? So the or? high temperature, um, what it's really defined by is um, uh, ROHS. So there's a European directive to remove um, heavy metals. Uh, um, and so ROHS solders are solders that melt at much higher temperatures um, than ordinary solders. Let me see if I have links for that. So, um, uh, so if you go to DigiKey, um, and then if we look for solder, Um, and then within solder, you can pick either leaded or lead-free. And so if we go to lead-free solder, um, then uh, to see typical numbers. Um, so like uh, this is a lead-free solder that melts at around 400 F. Um, and so the FR4 is needed to go up to that temperature, the, the leaded solders are lower than that, maybe half that. So FR1 and FR4, then um, to make, that's a rigid circuit. Um, you might want a flexible circuit. One reason is because it actually has to flex. Another reason is because you want to fit it into a complex shape. So uh, commercially that's done with Kapton most typically which is a fairly expensive material. Um, the way we do it is a nice process where we use 3M, um, uh, these two materials, a cast epoxy film and a copper foil. The um, copper foil, here, I can show you both of these. Um, Uh, this is the copper foil. It has an electrically conducting glue. Um, this is a few hundred dollars for a roll. So it costs much more than the vinyl. It can make a huge number of circuits, but you shouldn't use vast stretches of it just because it looks pretty. And then this is a very important material. This looks like vinyl, but it's not. It looks like just the ordinary white vinyl. Um, but that's, this is this material. It's the um, electrical tape, and this is much stronger than vinyl and works to much higher temperatures. And so that's what we use to make a more robust, flexible substrate for um, vinyl cutting circuits. Um, when you start to make high-frequency circuits, you need materials that are low-loss. And so in industry that's done with Teflon, what we can do is we can vinyl cut and transfer on glass. And gla vinyl cut copper on glass is a nice low-loss circuit. You'll only care about that for very high-frequency designs. And a final note, um, the units are funny. Uh, when you buy a PCB, um, it's rated by the weight of the copper a half, one or two ounces. In microns, 
most most common is maybe one ounce, which is 35 micron, is the thickness of the copper. And so that's why we don't need to cut very deep at all. We just need to cut deep enough through that thickness to cut out the traces. So you're going to do quick turn board fab, um, then come board houses. There's lots of these. Um, AP circuits, Sierra, all of these um, uh, are versions of board houses. Um, a basic job they do is you send them your design, they etch the PCB and send it back to you. Um, they all have similar services. Um, some of these, like Gold Phoenix, are actually front ends for Chinese manufacturing. And so you use those when you need even bigger volumes. Um, typical numbers are uh, quick turn with them has been coming down in cost from hundreds to tens of dollars. But sort of the ballpark still is, you know, roughly $100. Ballpark $100 to do a batch of boards and get them back. That number is coming down. But the number depends on how quick you want the term, how big the boards are, um, how many layers they have, how fine the features are, all vary the cost. But again, the, you know, it's, it's bulk, the just order of magnitude, $100 is a typical number, although they're coming down below that. And so that's why from say one to 10 boards, I would just make them in-house. Once you want more than say roughly 10 boards, that's when it makes sense to start sending it out to a board house. The scaling with these guys also works beautifully. You you once you get in with them, it's usually you know maybe even five boards. You pay a couple of hundred dollars, you know, um, but two hundred boards is almost the same price. Yeah. So the incremental cost comes down. Most of it is the setup, and then all of these vendors now. That one version is they send you the board. Um, one is. Um, you send them parts and they put the parts on your board. And increasingly, they're all set up to, you don't even send them the parts, you just send them a bill of materials. You say, Here, here's the board and here's the parts, and they source the parts and put them on your board. And so that's become a real commodity. They all do that now. And you know, uh, their parts. Say it again? You usually get discounts if you use their parts instead of general parts. Yep. Um, Can design you? rules. Hey, uh, it's uh, Jean-Luc. I'm sorry. I, I just wanted to pass along, since since we are kind of on the on the subject of copper foil and, and pricing, um, we received uh, we received a note from our FR1 uh, provider uh, within the last month, noting that copper foil uh, copper foil has actually spiked. In Asia, because copper foil, uh, the product, the foil production, sorry, has gone from uh, CCL manufacturing to lithium-ion uh, battery manufacturing. So there's going to be some shift in shift in pricing, um, but at least from the Fab Foundation side, we'll try to keep costs down for uh, the okay. Fab Labs. Yeah. So there's two notes on that. One is um, at the cost we pay. A board of this size is pennies of material, so we can afford to go that that to go up, and it's still a tiny fraction of the cost. Um, making these is not heroic; you just heat and squish copper with an adhesive on a backing. So it, at some point, we may end up wanting to do that in the labs rather than from China. 
Um, when you design their design rules, um, one is how skinny can a trace be, and one is how close can the traces be to each other. So when we mill with a one sixty a one sixty fourth is fifteen thousandths of an inch. Um, and so typical design rules we use are traces that are 15 mils, where a mil is a thousandth of an inch, and a spacing of 15 mils. Um, when you order PCBs commercially, those go down to maybe five mils. Five mil traces and five mil spacing is a typical number for a PCB house. Um, beyond that, you can go below that to say one mil, but that's what's called high density uh, interconnect, those, those are more advanced processes. Um, then come layers. Um, uh, the, uh, let me make a note. Um, you can make, oh, this is a one-sided board where um, it just has traces on one side. Um, those are fastest and easiest. And you'll find low-cost consumer products have one-sided boards because those are cheapest to make and assemble. And so many of the things you'll do will just be one-sided. Um, 1.5-sided is if you look at um, this board, um, there's a few little crossovers. And so a 1.5-sided board is one that is only on one side but you have some jumpers because there's a few places where traces need to cross. And so you, you use a zero ohm resistor to hop over. So what I'm calling 1.5 is a one-sided board that just has some crossovers. Two-sided is where you, um, uh, let me make another note. Um, Two-sided is where you mill one side flip it over and mill the other side. And then vias go between the top and bottom. Um, if you have a small number of vias, you can just solder a jumper. Um, one step beyond that is, um, I'll add a link to this. Um, uh, one of my students, um, let me find, um, made this page. Um, this is a process I'll link um, where to make a two-sided board, um, what you do is you pop little rivets in. You can get rivets with a tool designed for this process. And so you mill the top, you mill the bottom, and then you pop these little rivets in to do the interconnect. And then if you have a lot of them, um, you plate through. So again, the Ulu project is you have a plating bath, um, you connect it to a power supply, and it plates uh, through the hole. And that's what you do when you have to do a lot of these. And that's a fairly nice process. The plating baths aren't nearly as nasty as the etching baths. So that's two-sided. Um, a four-sided board is where you have top, bottom, and typically you have a whole layer for power and whole layer for ground. And a really dense board, like in a cell phone, can go up to, say, 10 layers just to handle all the sig signal routing. Um, one of the ways we can do that is, let's see, if we do, 
Um, you can mix these processes. So um, uh, this is a process where I milled one layer, then I cut vias in the epoxy film, and then I vinyl cut another layer. And so what I'm doing is rather than milling top and bottom, I'm actually adding layers on top of the board. I, I mill the base layer, but then I use the vinyl cutter to add the extra layers on top of that. So again, most of what we'll be doing is one or two-sided, but you can go beyond that. Um, when you buy a commercial board, typically it has a couple other things. It has a solder mask, which limits the solder to only want to stay over the pads. Um, and it has a silk screen, which is graphics printed on it. And then um, a more complex board is if you have um, traces on the top and bottom, a via go, it, uh, can go from top to bottom to connect the traces. Um, then a blind via doesn't go all the way through to connect to an internal layer and a buried via is completely internal. Those are much more expensive for board houses to produce. Um, we can do those additively with the process of laying up traces with the vinyl cutter um, to do it additively. Those are much more expensive processes. Next comes components. Um, this is... Um, a link to a search engine for parts. So um, this little dot is the ATtiny45, uh, one of the parts we'll use a lot of. This is a version that's through hole that goes through the board. Um, this is a version that goes on the surface and is very low profile. Um, this is a version that goes on the surface that's not quite as tight. And then this is a teeny version that's what's called chip scale packaging that's essentially the bare die just encapsulated. And that's when you want to make the tiniest uh, package of all. Um, we're going to um, pretty exclusively be using surface mount. Um, through whole parts, are all but obsolete. They only exist now um, when you need the mechanical linking of going through the hole. Otherwise, these are more work to use and take up more space. And so commercially, nobody uses them um, for you know, designs of any density. Um, chip scale is much harder to assemble. Um, we're, we're going to use chip scale parts in just a few places where you need them. So an example is um, microphones or accelerometers are now so dominated um, by cell phones that they're all in teeny packages. And so this is a chip scale package, and I'm do I'll come back to explain this um, where I'm doing reflow to assemble it, but we'll primarily use um, surface mount parts. Um, hobbyists make a lot of use of breadboards. Breadboards are, you take 
true hope part, stick them in the breadboard and stick in some wires. Um, I don't like them, and we're not going to use them routinely. And the reason is you can breadboard, but then you need to redo it with surface mount parts um, to make a circuit board. And essentially any new part is surface mount. They're cheaper, they're denser, and there's a couple of other issues with breadboards. One is they have bad electrical properties. They have all sorts of parasitics and crosstalk, and they're mechanically not stable. If you make something on a breadboard and you jiggle it, it may or may not keep working. And then when you're done, it's very easy to have a tangle of wires and have no idea what's on the breadboard. So you're going to learn to do quick turn fabrication. Um, something like this takes about 10 minutes per square inch to machine. And once your skills have ramped up, it takes about 10 minutes a square inch to, to stuff the parts to assemble them. Um, you know, initially it'll take you a week and then a day, but once you're good, it'll get down to that kind of schedule. And so in, within an hour, you can design and make a board like this. And then there's a lot of prototyping you can do. You don't have to completely remake it. If you make a mistake, you can desolder parts and resolder them. And you can do editing. So you can take just a knife and cut a trace that's a mistake. And you can solder a jumper to fix it. So um, if you look at a commercial PCB, um, Typically, in a commercial product, what you'll see is um, uh, lots of mess-ups. You, you'll see stuff like this in a commercial product. Somebody made a mistake and there's a wrong wire, and initially you ship it by just editing it, and then later you get around to fixing it. So the focus in the class is on getting really good at quick-turn fabrication, so in the same time you could use a breadboard, you can design and make a finished board that you can reproduce that has the final properties and is documented in the computer. Um, you're welcome to play with breadboards if you like them, but the focus is going to be getting really good at this quick turn fabrication process. Um, so now comes time to make the board. Um, we're going to solder it. Um, solder is, there's a lot going on in, a, in this kind of solder. Um, it's what's called a eutectic, um, which means um, if you look at the melting temperature of two materials, um, like uh, lead tin or copper tin, and this is the relative fraction, and this is the temperature, um, there's an intermediate composition where it's depressed. That's called a eutectic. And so that's what we use. We use eutectic alloys. Um, the solder also, if you look in the solder, it has a core that's a flux. And the flux does a lot of things. It helps the solder wet the material. It helps clean the joint. Um, you can 
Apply flux separately. You can get flux pens or flux dispensers. Some people who solder really like them, but we use solder that has flux within it. You can get the solder as wire, as a paste, and as a bar. Um, uh, so again, uh, if we go back to DigiKey, So um, one form you can get solder in as, as a paste that you apply with a dispenser. Um, we don't use that routinely because it's, it's a bit more expensive, but it also um, uh, has a lifetime and you need to refrigerate it. And so it needs better care and handling. So this is really nice for you can squeegee it through a mask to apply solder over a whole board to do it as a parallel process. But some people really like this. Rather than using solder, some people fall in love with paste and like to dispense it. And so um, you can experiment with it, but the routine thing we're going to use is wire soldering. Um, then to, to do the soldering process, you're going to so do manual soldering with a soldering iron. Uh, reflow is where you spread the solder and you put it in an oven and heat it. And you can get reflow ovens that are thermal with infrared that are very fast. You can do reflow in a toaster oven. Don't do it in one that you use food. Um, you can also actually do reflow with a frying pan. It works surprisingly well to put your board on a frying pan. Again, not one for food um, to do the reflow. And in even higher production, wave soldering is where you have a tank of molten solder and you have a little wave in it, literally, and you pull the board through the wave, and that's for the highest volume soldering. Um, so you're going to do manual soldering. Manual soldering is sort of deceptively interesting. Um, when an expert does it, they'll go, it'll look like that, it'll take a few seconds, and they'll be done. And they'll have a beautiful board. When you're learning, you'll do exactly the same motion, and it'll be a disaster. It'll be a mess. And so there's a lot going on when you solder. Um, so to, to make a solder joint, um, it, it's a little more profound than it looks. So here's our board. Here, here's, a, say, an integrated circuit. Um, here's the copper on the board. And then we have a lead coming down. Um, so we want to solder that lead. So the first thing we need to do is bring in the soldering iron. The soldering iron has a tip. Um, you want a tip that's not too coarse. You want a pretty fine tip. And then if you look at my tip, you'll see it's shiny. Um, a poorly treated soldering iron has a tip full of crud. And so the first thing you want to do is heat the soldering iron, melt some solder on it, and then um, with just a layer of insulation, you can take even a paper towel and just wipe it. And so what you want to do is you want to get the gunk off the tip and do what's called tinning it, which means there's a layer of molten solder on the tip. 
The reason that's important is the solder has a critical role in heat transfer. So here comes the tip now. If the tip is dirty, heat isn't transferred effectively. And so you get a bad joint. But if the tip is tinned, meaning it has this layer of solder film on it, the solder film helps bridge the gap and transfer the heat. Now you'll see I put the tip right at the boundary of the joint. If you heat either the board or the component alone, it doesn't go to both sides. Okay, so he here it is. Then the next thing I'll do is I'll feed in a little more solder and I'll make a blob. So now there's a blob that looks like that. And then I wait a minute. What's happening is that blob is spreading heat through the joint. And then I wait a minute and what I'm doing is I'm watching. And then as the heat makes its way up the lead and down the board, um, the blob will start spreading. And then when I see the blob start spreading, I'll feed in some more solder. If I feed it in too soon, the joint's not hot, and so it's just going to ball up in a glob. So I feed in a little more solder, it spreads, and then comes a crucial step. I wait. I keep heating a little longer, and what's happening is the solder is wetting the joint. It's spreading over the joint. I wait for it to spread and then I take the iron away. Um, when you do all of that, um, what you get is uh, this. So if you look at these solder joints, you'll see two things. They're shiny and they're smooth. Shiny and smooth means the solder wet the joint, it flowed over it. If the joint isn't shiny and smooth, it's not a solder joint. Um, if, you, if it's not shiny and smooth, it'll look kind of gray and granular and chunky and rough. That's not a solder joint. It's not an electrical connection. And typically that happens because um, you, the soldering iron wasn't tinned. You didn't heat it both sides, you didn't wait long enough for it to spread. If you just go put the solder in, take it away, you'll get a gnarly blob that's not actually a solder joint. And so one of the things you want to practice is do a whole bunch of joints until they're shiny and smooth. Boss? No, it's, it's Homa, actually. It, okay. I just wanted to say it's like a suction effect. Like you really feel like the solder is, is being sucked down by the the copper pads. Yeah, I think Bas. Okay, yeah, Bas was going to say something. Yeah, I was um, uh, going to say about um, soldering and using. Um, uh, so if it doesn't become completely shiny, um, also check if you didn't accidentally have uh, silver uh, solder instead of lead solder. Okay, um, it, it, it's a surprisingly zen-like experience. Um, you have to kind of tune in and could sort of be at one with the joint. And when it's working, it just sort of flows beautifully. And when you watch somebody do it, it just looks like they did that. And you'll do exactly the same thing and make a gnarly mess. And so it, it, it's a little more subtle than it looks to make a nice joint. So um, 
Many of the components we use have an orientation. They have to be pointing the right direction. We'll go over that. Um, then here's one of the tricky things. Um, if we um, uh, want to put down a component, uh, let's say we want to just attach a resistor. So here, here's a pad and here's a pad. Um, you have to hold the resistor in place while soldering it. So how does that work? Well, the way I like to do that is you first solder bump a pad. You just put some solder on the pad without the component. Then you heat that solder, and then you come in with a nice pair of tweezers. And this is a very sensitive thing. These are nice tweezers, and you see the tips are nice and sharp. It's really sad when you see these on a workbench, and they've been used as a crowbar to change the tires on your car. You'll find the tips really gnarly. This is just for holding fine parts. So then what you or do you, is... Or, sorry, or if, you, or if they've been anywhere near the vinyl cutter. Yeah, they get gunky. So with the fine and tweezers, you bring in your part and you just stick it down there. That's not a solder joint. You're actually using the solder as a glue. You're tacking it down. So the solder is holding it. Then you come and solder this joint and make it shiny and smooth. But you're not done. You need to go back to this joint and re-solder it. And so a nice technique is you use the solder to hold the part, solder all the other leads, and then you go back to where you started to finish soldering. Um, some other notes, solder from the bottom to the top and inside out. People often start with the biggest parts and then you can't get to the little parts. Um, solder the uh, flux re releases fumes. If you do this all day long, it's hazardous and you need really good ventilation. For small boards like this, it's not considered a health hazard. It's just sort of a nuisance hazard. And so you can get little exhaust fans. They're optional based on how sensitive you are to it for small production. For sustained production, you, need, you do need good ventilation um, of the exhaust from it. Uh, when you're done, um, it's a good idea to wash your board. There's crud on it from the process. And all these components are designed to be washed as part of the process. That'll help the lifetime after you're done. Um, you're going to make mistakes. And so you need to desolder. Um, one of the ways to desolder is with braid. Um, so it's a copper braid. And it's a, there's some skill to use it. It wicks the solder away, as Roman was describing. But to use it, you have to add solder to remove it. You bring in the braid. You put solder on the braid. That wets the joint, and then it goes, and it sucks it all up. Um, uh, one of the techniques I like to use is, um, let me grab a tool. Um, oh, sorry, it's over here. So um, this is one of my favorite tools. Um, this is this. This is a hot air gun, not for hair, but for industry. And it comes with this very fine tip. And so this lets you melt solder. And one of the neat ways to use this is um, if this is a component I didn't want, I hold the component I don't want, I bring in the hot air gun, I aim it, it melts the solder, and then the board falls away from the component I don't want, 
leaving me holding it with the board removed. And once you learn that technique, it's really fast and easy to, to if anything is wrong, to take components off. And then you take the braid and you clean up the traces and then you add new components back. So um, desoldering is normal and fine. And you don't need to completely remake the board. When I'm developing a board, I'll do lots of adding and removing of parts while I'm experimenting. Um, and again, there's a lot of editing you can do. You can cut the traces. You can solder jumpers. Um, before you make a new board, there's a lot of editing you can do on the board. Um, further down, um, you can use a pick and place to automate placing parts. Um, I have one, but I don't use it much because the vendors have gotten so good on that. And then a few of the parts we use, you have to do what I'm showing here. This is a, a tip scale part where the leads are underneath. And so you can, with um, this nice tool, you can do local reflow. What you do is you put a solder bump on the board, you uh, um, bring in your part, and you use this to locally heat it. And so you can learn, it's a kind of parallel soldering where instead of reflowing the whole board, you just reflow the part you want to use. And that's a way to, to attach tip scale parts. So next is we need to get our job. So um, here's, there are multiple versions, but here's a version of the Fab ISP we're going to make. And I'll describe a few versions. Um, uh, here's another version of it. Um, so these are the traces we want to make, and th that's the interior. Um, the most common way to describe PCBs is Gerber. Gerber is a bizarre format that dates back to photo platters and sewing machines. It's, it's a very strange format that is just has become standard for PCBs. Um, uh, my favorite way to do it is is, is bitmaps, though. Um, uh, um, the process of making these boards, we're doing at a few hundred dots per inch effective resolution, which means an image that's like, say, 5K by 5K or 10K by 10K is the full resolution of the machine. And so I like to use these as an interchange format because they're very easy to edit and easy to understand. Um, we use PNGs rather than JPGs, because PNGs do better with absolute dimensions and do better with compression artifacts. And so historically, that was not standard for PCBs. Increasingly, it's becoming more common. So a few years ago, I wrote fab modules that are now um, supported as a GitHub project that uh, Fiori Basili runs and many people contribute to. And so um, this is what the process looks like to read in. Go ahead, sorry about um, uh, DPIs. Uh, indeed, a few, a few hundreds, um, but uh, over a thousand, so 1,200, 1,500 DPI. Otherwise, you'll find that you get problems with um, uh, it no longer fitting. No longer yeah, fitting. it's a question of the resolution for sure. Like, thousand DPI is a good number. Yep. Okay, so. Here in the fab modules, I'm going to read in traces. I'm going to pick a process, like the Roland Modella. There's already defaults. And then I'm going to um, K 
calculate the traces. And so what it's doing now is it's offsetting for the tool diameter, it's nesting, and then it's sorting the path to go to the machine. So that, that was the traces. And then I'm, I'm going to switch to the 132nd inch tool to cut it out. And so this is going to be the exterior of the board. And so now this is doing multiple passes to cut the board out. Um, more recently, I've been writing this mods project. And the reason for that is if you go to fab modules, under the hood are all of these modules that do stuff, but you can't see them. And so the idea of the mods project is they bring them out so you can see and modify them in the browser. And so in the mods project, this is what it looks like. I'm going to open a workflow open the traces. It's the same thing, but now you can see everything working. So these are all the parts doing the calculating. And then here's the tool path to cut out the traces. And that only needs one layer I, because it's such a shallow cut. And then I send it to the machine. And now I'm going to cut out the outline of the board. And that'll do three, three passes deep to cut through the board. Um, and then I send that to the machine. And so with the mods version, you can see in the browser all of the parts, and you can combine them and reuse them in different ways. And so that's what we'll use to calculate the toolpath. And now the laser cutting curve was a little bit optional. Here, we're doing this at very high resolution. So it's essential if we go back to the calculation um, when we get to this point. Um, sorry, let's get to, uh, so what's happening here is it's offsetting for the diameter of the tool. It's nesting multiple passes, and that's to remove enough copper to solder. <clears throat> and then it's sorting to make the tool path efficient. And so there's a lot that goes into that calculation. We'll see more of this when we get to bigger scale machining. Um, this is a little test file I recommend you using. This is a test file that goes one mil at a time for the trace width and spacing. And um, it's a good exercise to try cutting this to see what resolution your process is working at um, to, to, to check it. So now we get to this week's process. Um, uh, this is the commercial programmer to load programs into microcontrollers. And those the commercial ones might cost $100. Uh, David Mellis, who is one of the Arduino uh, lead software developers, took the How to Make class at MIT. And he first made this version of the programmer that you can make as part of a, using the tools in the Fab Lab. Uh, Andy made a, a version where, unlike David's, instead of having a connector for the USB, he actually just machined the USB connector itself. Um, this one has some jumpers. There's a tricky thing. Initially, you have to load a program into this, but then it's going to become a programmer. And so you have to reverse the direction. And so Andy's version has jumpers you remove. 
uh, Valentin did a version that was very clever where he actually machined a snap-off part. And so you, you snap off a part. Once you've programmed it, you snap this off, and it goes from being a programmer to being, to being programmed to being a programmer. So that was his version. Uh, Ali was confused by all of this, so he made a really nice page explaining absolutely everything about how this works and what's going on in it. So that was his version. Then, now I forget, was Boss based on Zerk or Zerk based on Boss? What was the history of that? I think um, uh, I just named the board Boss. Sorry, you named it after Boss? Oh, so it's all uh, yeah. Zerk and it was just named after Boss? Okay. Well, the original design was made by a guy named Chris Chung, I think. Okay. Okay, so anyway, that's uh, Zerk's version. And then this is passed all around. Um, one of the students in the MIT class was inspired by Zerk's version, and he made it even simpler. And so this is the version, I, this is, you can make any of these. This is a version I rec recommend you make. Um, this version... Now, there's something really sneaky here. Um, this version uses the tiny 45, and you have to turn this from being programmed to becoming a programmer. And there's a sneaky way this one does it because you can take one of its pins and you can reset the pin so that you can never program this again. And so the way you reverse the direction of this board is by flipping it so you load the program, and then you change it so you can never reprogram it. So this is the simplest version of all. One caution, don't plug this into your computer. The reason is it's not quite as thick, so you need to add a little bit of solder bumps. And when you flex this, you're flexing the motherboard of your computer. So spend a dollar more and get a USB extension so you plug the USB cable into your computer and you flex the cable rather than your motherboard. It's just an important little detail. Um, below here is another version that I did based on David's original version. Um, so th this is a version that uses more pins on the Tiny 45, and then here are all the files for that. So all of these work. They're all slightly different. You can make any of them. You know, if in doubt, I think uh, Brian's is now the simplest one of all that's the least work. So the goal of this, at the end of this week, you should have something that looks like this. The traces should be perfect. The components should be attached. And all the joints should be shiny and smooth. Um, for extra credit, it would be nice to actually load the program into it. And for even more extra credit, it'd be nice to test, is this a programmer? But everything you see here is only a few dollars in parts. And so it's fine to mess up, and it's fine to make multiple of these. It, it's not a large investment. The goal is to go through the sequence. Um, what you might want to do if you're a beginner is just make some pads and practice soldering components, then go ahead and make the board and then go ahead and test to see if you can program it. So um, this is a link to all of the steps on um, uh, David's version. 
to load the program in it. So what I want you to do is mill it, stuff it, and then optionally experiment with other processes. So at the end of this week, you're left with a programmer. Um, uh, looking ahead, um, we gave you the design file this week. In two weeks, you're going to make the design file. So you're going to learn about the design software. And then two weeks after that, that's when we really start. That's when you're actually going to start writing programs for the processors. And that's when we need your board to be a programmer. So we're going to keep revisiting this multiple times over. The Really, the goal for this week is just to get to milling out the board, cleaning it up, attaching the components, and placing them. Um, to run through on it, um, this version has the microcontroller. And note that there's a dot for the pin. That tells you the orientation. Um, it has Zener diodes that are clamps. And the Zener diodes are explained. If we go to um, Ali's page, Ali had, um, just worked through explaining it. So he explained why we have those. Those are clamps that limit the voltage. And the Zener diodes have an orientation. And so they have a little line on them. And you have to get that pointing in the right direction. Um, there are LEDs so you can see what's happening. Those also have an orientation. Um, and then the resistors and the connector uh, and the capacitor doesn't have an orientation. So um, you need to um, get all of that right. It's a nice idea to, when you're a beginner, do something like this. Lay out all the parts before you start, label them, and then start placing them. And by the way, there's a really sensitive thing, which is um, the parts you're going to be using are come on these tapes for surface mount assembly. Um, one of these strips, if it's not labeled, it can be very hard to tell what it is. So it's very annoying to find surface mount strips on the workbench that are abandoned. It's, it's very important that you put them back where you got them, because it can be very hard for some of these parts to identify what they are. That's, that's an important part of housekeeping. So this week's assignment is a learning curve. It, there's skills you need to learn to make this compared to putting parts in a breadboard. But everybody masters them. You're going to learn to do it. And in return for that extra work, you're going to be able to make beautifully finished compact boards with state-of-the-art parts that can go into volume production as a rapid prototyping process, rather than just learning to stick parts in a breadboard. Um, you're going to master this. Not this week. This week is just the beginning. We're going to keep revisiting it as you develop the skills. So questions or comments? Hi, this is Yanni from Oulu. So, uh, just a small comment about uh, those uh, double-sided uh, plates, PCBs. If you yep. want to do them yep. in, in uh, FabLab, uh, one way to do it manually is to put a piece of wire or a leg of a component through the hole and solder it from both sides to make a connection. And uh, 
then Yari also reminded me that there is a pasta that you can just put it in the holes and then you just bake it and that's it. Yeah, so to explain that, um, solder only goes where it's hot. So if this is a hole through a board, um, if you try to stuff solder in the hole, it won't work because there's nothing hot in the hole. So um, if you take an axial component, just a lead or a wire, and if you stick the wire in the hole, then if you heat it, the solder will march down the wire and come out the other side, and then you just snip the top and bottom. And if you just have a few of these, that's the easiest way to do it. Again, I'll add a link. The point of um, this is, let's see, let me just do this quickly again. Um, the point of this process is, this is a larger board Amanda made, and she has quite a few of these. And so that would be a lot of snipping. And so um, these, I think, will add to the Fab Lab inventory. They're rivets just for this purpose. You, you pop them in and just hit it to pop the rivet in, and then flow the solder. And so these are quicker and more compact if you have to do a whole bunch of them. And then if you have to do even more, again, you electroplate through. Other questions or comments? By the way, just yeah, on yeah. the point, uh, I, I'm a fan of 1.5D boards, meaning often routing is where you send the traces. Often there aren't that many places where you have routing problems. And so you can get away with a 1D board with just a few zero ohm resistors on the top side rather than having a two-sided board. Um, go ahead, somebody else? Yeah. Uh, Francois from Montreal. Um, I just have a question I don't understand about the ESP. Uh, like you said, we need to program the ESP first before it can become a programmer. Yeah. So won't we need another ESP to Oh, <laughs> to yeah. Program? So you need to bootstrap. Um, in your lab, um, you, need a, you need a programmer in your lab to program your programmer. All right. Yes. So uh, there's a chicken and egg, and the in this case, let's see, the the egg is initially you buy a commercial one, and then it makes the chickens. But once you've made a programmer, that can program another one. Got it. Uh, this is again Yanni right. from Oulu. So just one yep. comment. Uh, you should be able to bit bang it with a FPA cable. Actually, the Sorry. first one. Uh, Bit. Oh right. So yeah, yeah. So um, uh, the a AVR dude is the thing we're using um, to load the programs. And his point is, you can actually emulate the programmer completely in software to bootstrap the whole process. Um, but nevertheless, there's a couple reasons I recommend having one of these in your lab. Um, the newer ones that we'll talk about. Um, there's some newer protocols um, that let you do in-circuit debugging. So your programmer you're going to make loads the program. A fancier programmer like this actually lets you start and stop and debug the circuit in real time. And it also gives you some feedback. It tells you some of what's going on in the circuit. So I do recommend the investment, you know, $100 investment to have you know, one of these in your lab along with the ones you're going to make.
Uh, Neo. Yeah. Neo, this is Lucy. I guess you can use also an Arduino as a programmer. Yep, you can. That's right. I should add a link to that. Yep. And Neil, okay. John, look again. Yep. Uh, just, just very quickly on those uh, on the components, you held up the the cut tape. You said it was very, uh, very kind of. It's a headache to kind of keep track of them. It, it, it's important to note that there are digits and lines on those components that actually tell you uh, exactly what the component is and whether it's uh, polarized or not. So those those small details are very important to to note when you're uh, even when you're soldering these uh, components on, right. the, on the boards. But the caution, Jean-Luc, is some of them are clearly labeled. Some of the ones we use aren't labeled. For example, the capacitors we use don't have capacitance values. It, it varies from part to part on, on um, whether you can use them. And by the way, let me look ahead to um, <clears throat> a subject of great confusion <clears throat> that we'll get to in Embedded Programming Week, which is, is Arduino. Arduino is five different things. Um, it's a form factor for a board. It's a development environment for the board. Um, it's a set of libraries you use with the board. It's a tool chain to talk to the board. Um, and it's a commercial production of the boards. Um, in what we're going to do, we're going to split those apart. So rather than buying an Arduino, um, this you can use the Arduino environment with this. You're going to make your own Arduino for, for a dollar in parts. And then you're going to learn you can use the Arduino development with other processors, and you can use other development environments with the Arduino processor, which is actually an AVR. And so the Arduino is actually a whole bunch of different things all mixed together. You'll learn to use Arduino IDE and make your with commercial Arduinos, then make your own Arduino, but then we're going to open it up to the space of other processors and other tool chains around that. So. In the coming weeks, we'll be unpacking all the different things going on under the hood in Arduino and learn to use each of them separately. Hello, Neo. Kendo yep. from Brazil. Uh, I see that Brown Board doesn't use uh, Resonator or um, Crystal. Is that ah. uh, what <laughs> So that's, that's, that's a funny hack. Um, so my version of the board, based on David's version of the board, uses a crystal to tell time very accurately. And that's what you need for the USB specification. So this is crazy. David's board is missing that. What he's doing is um, he's using a very clever hack. Um, I don't know these people, but I'm a big fan of them. They wrote a software version of USB for AVR processors. I'd love to meet the people behind this. And what this is doing is a brilliant hack. This board can't tell time accurately enough to do USB, but the computer it's talking to can. So the computer talks to it, and it uses that to figure out the clock. And then it adapts to the computer it's talking to. So it uses the, the, clock, the crystal on the host computer effectively as its crystal. 
And so even though it can't t tell time accurately, it can measure time accurately. And so it uses that to adaptively talk back. It's a very clever hack. Um, the version, my version again that I linked, just nails it to the ground by putting a crystal on the board. Um, David's version, the Zerk's version that has this longer history, adapts the clock to be able to tell the time. And that's part of what makes it even simpler still. Okay, we're after 12 o'clock. Um, so, again, schedule. Um, Monday recitation will be run by Roman. It's an introduction to like the whole, all the organizations across the Fab Lab network. Um, you'll make PCBs this week, um, and then we'll rejoin next week for 3D scanning and printing. So happy board making, and see you all in a week. Bye bye. 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 Bye.